But I thought what I would do is spend a few moments just giving, at least from my perspective, an overview of the country's national security, um, and then I would be interested in, in what uh, may be on, on y'all's minds. If you step back and look at the bigger picture, I think there are two trends uh, of significance. One trend is the threats are getting more numerous and more complex. Once upon a time, we had a very big threat called the Soviet Union, which could annihilate the United States. And so all our effort and, and focus was on it. Now we have a resurgent Russia, which has a lot of the same capabilities, a rising China. But in addition to that, we've got uh, a, an, a, an insurgent type state uh, in Iran that is spreading its influence across the Middle East and beyond. Um, Terrorism has not gone away, and you, so you have ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I, I was in uh, Iraq 10 days ago. Fortunately, the Iraqis and, and the Syrian Democratic Forces are shrinking the territory that ISIS controls in Iraq and Syria. But what's also happening is a bunch of them are squirting out to other places. And, and uh, as Jim mentioned, the kind of thing that we just saw in New York you know, lone wolves inspired by their ideology based on videos and so forth is something that the West will have to have to continue with. And then, in addition to that, you have what most Americans have been focused on uh, recently, and that is uh, the threat of North Korea. Uh, over the last couple to three months I've been home, I try to talk to farmers about the farm bill, I'll talk to realtors and other groups about the tax bill, and I'll try to have all these groups. You know, sometimes they'll be polite for a question or two, but then all they want to talk about is North Korea. Uh, I think the fee that the way the feeling that Americans have of being under the threat of missiles that can reach our homeland from this outlaw regime that is not crazy, but also not rational in the way we're thinking of it. It's it's bringing it home to people in a way that. Uh, has, has not before. And, and so you look about all of these threats. You can't just focus on one or the other. You have to deal with them all and all at the same time. And in addition to that, you've got new domains of warfare. We have to worry about protecting the country in cyberspace. We have to worry about connecting, uh, protecting the country in outer space, which, uh, despite some people wanting to stick their head in the sand, is a new domain of warfare. And, and I don't know how much you all want to talk about this, We've got to worry about protecting the integrity of the country in the information domain. So one of the things I do at home is I bring some of the Facebook ads that the Russians bought and paid for in the last election that, that tries to pull on Texas heartstrings. One of the uh, Facebook pages was called Deep in the Heart of Texas, and it was, had a bunch of tes Texas how to secede from the Union and, and, and this other wow. sort of stuff to try to draw Texans in and then, of course, uh, it was anti-Hillary, anti-immigrant, and, and a variety. But just as one example of how creating social divides, uh, they're good at it, and they're not the, they, the Russians, and they're not the only ones who are, who are uh, at it. So my point is, threats are multiplying, and they are getting more complex, and they reach us even here at home. The other big trend, in addition to increasing threats, is we've cut the defense budget about 20% in the last seven years. I suspect most people in this room did not know that. 
Uh, I suspect that there is not another major government program that's been cut 20% uh, in, in the last seven or eight years. But today, we are spending 18% less on defense than was spent in 2010. Now, how can that possibly have happened that we are 20% lower in funding and yet the threats are, are going up? Well, as Secretary Mattis testifies, the way that's happened is on the backs of the men and women who serve. We are asking them to do more and more. But there is a limit to even what they can do. And so you're seeing some of those <laughs> limits when you, when you see recent accident rates. Uh, so for example, we just got the report last week of the two terrible destroyer accidents in the Pacific that killed all those sailors. Well, it turns out that some of those sailors were working 100 hours a week None of those ships had, were uh, compliant with all the certifications. In other words, they had never had time to take them into port and do the inspections so they could be certified that they were ready to go for, for their mission. And a lot of those sailors basic, did not have the training they were supposed to have. And some of, of the, the specifics of that are pretty appalling, actually. Um, so that's what's happened. I mean, you can't. Our, the feeling has been you can't take one of these destroyers that is important for missile defense offline when you have this threat looming from North Korea. So what do you do? You ask everybody to, to just do, work harder, work more. And, but there's a limit even, even to what they can do. So now we have two fewer destroyers than we had before because it's going to take months and months and a lot of money to fix those two ships. That's just an example. But if you look at accident rates across the board, uh, they're going up in a variety of ways. Uh, part of that's old equipment, part of that is training, part of it's using, working people to death. So uh, these two intersecting lines, uh, increasing threats, decreasing budgets, uh, we're seeing the evidence of. And just as a summary of the situation, we have the smallest army since before World War II, the smallest navy since before World War I, and the smallest and oldest Air Force we've ever had in our history. At the time, when we have all those threats that we were just, that we were just talking about. So this year, uh, as, as was mentioned, we are, uh, uh, basically we're finished with the, this year's Defense Authorization Conference Report. Um, I'm meeting uh, with conferees later this morning on the House side, and it will, it's supposed to be on the floor next Tuesday on the House side. I'm not sure what the Senate schedule is. The goal, two goals of this year's uh, conference report, number one is to rebuild the military, and the num number two, uh, according uh, along the lines that Greg was talking about, is to uh, reform so that we are more agile. Um, so on, on rebuild, uh, I think that a lot of us who follow these issues closely are absolutely determined to say this is the time that we've got to turn this situation around. Um, as a matter of fact, I voted against the CR, uh, even though it had disaster aid for Texas, because I am not going to continue to uh, vote for CRs that do such damage. And we can talk about all the ways that continuing resolutions are not or do not keep things even. They do real lasting damage uh, to the military. And uh, 
And, and so this is the time to turn things around. As you all know, we voted three times in the House on the authorization bill, on the appropriation bill, and on the budget uh, to have about a 10% increase in defense. The Senate and, uh, voted 89 to 8 for their uh, defense authorization bill, which was even a little bigger increase. Uh, so that just kind of gives you the scale, and but also the bipartisan agreement that we have cut defense too much. This is time to turn it around. Um, Greg was mentioned, I came to Washington for the first time in 1983 uh, as a staffer for a guy who was on the Appropriations Committee. Those were days after really Reagan had gotten the buildup going. But we've had testimony this year that our Air Force pilots are getting fewer flying hours today than pilots got in the hollow military of the 1970s, wow. which most of us think was the worst. You know, after Vietnam, Jimmy Carter times, and, and so Reagan came in, you know, to, to repair and rebuild the military. So I thought it would be, it was interesting to go back and look, okay, what sort of budget increases did it take for him, uh, or and them, to rebuild the military after the hollow post-Vietnam Jimmy Carter days? Well, as you remember, Soviets invaded Afghanistan, so the last year of the Carter administration, they had a 15% increase in the defense budget. Reagan comes in, and then next year there's a 17%, next year an 18%, next year a 13%, next year a 9%, next year 11%. That's the sort of thing it took to get out of uh, what the hollow military of the 70s. That's the sort of thing it's going to take for us if, if we're going to fix it. Um, and, and so it's not a one-year thing. It's something that requires sustained effort because we've done deep and lasting damage. I'll talk just a second about reform. Um, not only do we need to spend more money, we need to spend it better. And we need to spend it more efficiently. And to me, the highest priority is we've got to be more agile. And because the threats are evolving, technology is evolving, we cannot have a 1950s bureaucracy and keep up with the speed of those changes. So uh, acquisition reform has been a major focus for me in the House bill. This is just one example this year. We have a provision that, and I use Amazon because all of us use it in our daily lives, uh, but, but a provision that allows the Pentagon and actually the rest of government to go use online marketplaces to buy stuff, to buy commercial off-the-shelf items. Now, the deal now, as you all know, is you can either use the GSA schedule, which is shown to be more expensive than commercial prices, or you can do the whole bid and, and appeals process. I'm trying to give a third option. Nobody has to use it. But with these online portals that are, exist now for businesses where if you're buying a commercial off-the-shelf item, you're not going to go buy a tank on it. But you can buy your paper towels and your treadmills. Uh, you can go on there, and, and a huge amount of what DOD buys is that sort of stuff. You can go on there, you can click, and you can get it. Uh, and there's a complete uh, traceability, accountability on who does what. And it all happens faster, more efficiently, uh, as just one example of trying to bring Pentagon procurement into the 21st century. We've got uh, all sorts of other changes. Uh, I mentioned space. We have major reforms in, in, in space and uh, and an audit. Uh, I don't know if that's of particular interest to anybody. Uh, by the way, the fiscal year that started October 1st will be audited 
uh, for the first time ever. The Pentagon budget will be audited for the first time ever. Bravo. Uh, starting. <laughs> let me just let me just close with this. Why does why does this stuff matter? Uh, and I've just offered two thoughts. One is if young, if men and women volunteer to risk their lives to protect us and our freedom, we owe them the best that our country can provide in the way of equipment, in the way of training, in the way of support. They have not been getting it, and they deserve that. Uh, our strongest asset, you know, we spend lots of time talking about planes and ships and stuff, but our strongest asset are the men and women who serve. They deserve to have the best our country can provide for them. Second point is, um, I think all of us have become complacent at how we benefit from the world that the United States created and has maintained since the end of World War II. Now, I can give you lots of statistics about how many people have been lifted out of poverty, how life expectancies have increased, and how the world has benefited from the world we and our allies have created and maintained since the end of World War II. I think what Americans don't appreciate is how much better our lives are. How, until North Korea and, and understanding the Soviet Union, we really hadn't had to worry about foreign invasions. Uh, we have been able to increase our prosperity and our quality of life and our length of life, largely because of the security situation in the world uh, and and the economic situation in the world that comes from that security, by the way. You can't have global trade if you can't protect uh, sea lanes, et cetera. That whole system we helped establish with our allies, we have maintained with our allies, and it is under threat like never before. And uh, my point is we better not walk away from that system, from the sacrifices that built it, from the benefits it gives us every day in our lives without understanding completely what we're walking away from. So not everybody is involved in, in the, the, the toing and froing of various weapon systems and personnel policies and all of that, but every single one of us has a lot at stake in the national security of the United States and what it means for our country and for our personal safety. Uh, we've got to do better than we have been doing, and I'm reasonably optimistic that we will. Stop there and see what questions <laughs> You and I came to Washington the same year, and back then we had Ronald Reagan who had just launched this strategic defense initiative. For the last 35 years, the opposition party has seemed to kind of thwart that along the way. <clears throat> and I asked the question in the context of North Korea, because we sit here today all with smartphones that have more computing tech power than the White House had back then, which tells me that we probably could have had the technology to have an effective missile defense system today. Where are we with that? Brief, brief story. On the morning of 9-11, I was with a handful of other members over at the Pentagon having breakfast with Rumsfeld. And, and we ended up leaving just 15-ish uh, minutes. Uh, Lou was working with me then. We left about 15 minutes before the plane hit there. 
But not too long ago, uh, they made public some of the briefing papers that they had prepared for Rumsfeld for our breakfast that morning. And the main purpose of the breakfast was to, and remember, this is September 2001. Uh, they're just getting their first budget stuff together. The, bit, the purpose of the breakfast was to implore us to support the Bush administration's first request for missile defense, which was $8.3 billion. Guess how much we're spending today, 17 years later, for the Missile Defense Agency? $8.2 billion. So, 17 years later, we are spending less on missile defense than Bush was, was pushing in 2001. Uh, it's been, a, you're exactly right, it's been a fight every step of the way. So we've got theoretically 44 interceptors in uh, Alaska and California to knock down a missile that's coming at us from North Korea. We don't really have 44 because some of them are tests and, and, and various things. Uh, but that's what we got. Plus, we have some lower-level systems. You hear about that and Patriot. That's for shorter-range, lower-level things. But if something's coming from North Korea, uh, we have the, the 44 interceptors, and that does not mean we can knock down 44 missiles, by the way. Uh, you don't use one for one. Uh, now, we are improving our uh, defenses uh, our regional defenses by, by uh, a variety of those systems I mentioned, that Patriot, Aegis Ashore, etc. In the bill um, that the House and the Senate are completing, we increase the number of interceptors in all of those systems. Uh, we put some more silos in the ground up there and, um, and, and, and have more interceptors on the, 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 the lower level systems. But what we really got to do is we got to figure out better ways to shoot missiles down. Uh, and that means research into space-based systems and so forth, the kinds of things that Reagan talked about that have been such a political football uh, in, in all of those 30-something years since then. Um, we, a lot of time has slipped away from us. The threat has grown, and we've got a lot of catching up to do when it comes to missiles.